You'll take your Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. My intention is to preach for really from one verse, verse 16 at the very end. But I want you to get the picture of what's going on and what Paul is talking about in this chapter. And what's going on in this chapter is very similar to what we saw going on in Psalm 12. It's a time in which there are evil days. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's telling Timothy what to expect. Uh, you know, I think, uh, I don't know about you, but and I don't know if it's because of this country or culture, but there's a great deal of romanticism in me in which I think that life will be easy and that the church can be perfect. And after all, the early church was perfect, and uh, we can have the perfect church if we just rearrange things and do things a little better. And as I grow older, hopefully I'm not growing cynical, but coming to the realization that the church is an embattled organization, that we are, we are in a war, that we are in a battle. And the sooner we understand that and in a degree come to grips with that, not that we roll over and play dead and we'll see. No, we have a mission to go into all the world. But it's a world that is full of difficulty. Notice verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. But it's not just in the church. It's, I mean, it's not just in the world that we face opposition. It's in the church. Notice down in verse 8, but Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. One of the things that we have to be prepared to do is to recognize evil and the inroads of evil in the church, and we have to stand and work for the truth. However, notice the answer. You have the first half of this chapter, verses 1 to 9, which talk about the problems. The second half focus more on the answers. And what are the answers? Verse 10, however, you have followed my teaching. You have followed my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love and steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We may not like that, but that's what it says. That's what the reality of those who want to follow Christ can expect. But what's the answer? Well, verse 16, it is the God-breathed word. All scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God wants us to know the reality of the world in which we live, not so that we can be discouraged, not so we can despair, so we can have hope. God has called us into this world to be evangelists and missionaries and preachers of the truth. Follow along now as I read this chapter, beginning at verse 1, 2 Timothy 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, 
disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord has rescued me. Indeed, all, those who, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go on from bad times to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you again for the great privilege to come together with your children, your people, as the family of God at this location, and to enter into heaven itself. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from our own thoughts, from thoughts that wander, from minds that think of other things, take our thoughts off this afternoon or next week. Help us to listen to your word, Lord, not to this speaker necessarily, but to your word. This is your word to us today, and we pray that you would help us to understand and to hear it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to talk this morning about 2 Timothy 3.16, but before we get there, I want to visit the Great Commission. You remember the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The verb that controls the Great Commission is the verb make disciples. In the Greek, this word is surrounded by three participles. The first word in the sentence is going. Going, make disciples, baptizing, teaching. Now, I'm not suggesting that the, the 
imperative there, go therefore and make disciples. The going is it's not a bad translation. But one thing we should understand is that going is directly related. It's, it's an adverbial participle. You'll have to forgive me for a little grammar today. A son of an English teacher cannot not talk a little grammar. But there are three adverbial clauses there. The command, make disciples, are surrounded by three adverbial clauses. Going, baptizing, teaching. The going is assumed. And I I bring this up today in light of what we've read, in the light of the culture in which we live. We cannot lose sight of the need to go. We need to be people who are thinking about going Going is not just for pastors, it's not just for missionaries, it's for every one of us. In everything we do, we're to be thinking about how to go. And what I want to give you this morning in 2 Timothy 3.16 is a way to engage with those around you, with those you meet. But you know, before you can engage, you have to go. You have to be involved. You know, one of the great joys of the prison ministry is that we are going. We are going together every week. I don't know about, I know some of the men, but I know I get very nervous every Thursday afternoon. We're going into places of people we don't know, but they're unbelievers. They know nothing about the Bible almost. And we all, but we always come out on a high. A friend of mine who goes into the prisons, he said, I never leave the prison that I'm not on a high. I don't think that's an accident. You see, when we go, when we are going, when we are engaging unbelievers, the Holy Spirit is promised to be with us. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, and I'm with you always. It's no accident that we, we feel that movement in our hearts and our minds to talk about what's been going on. I tell people the sweetest time is Thursday evening on the way home because most of the time three of us meet out at Westchester and we ride in together. And we, on the way home, we talk about what happened. We talk about what the men said, what they asked. You know, in going, you don't, you don't, have, to be, you don't have to have a seminary education. You don't, you don't have to be the smartest one on the block. You have to go. You have to go and you have to talk and you have to listen. You say, well, you know, I'm a mother and I, I just barely get to the park with the kids. We thought about that other mother that's there at the park, just engaging her, finding out what she's going on, what she's going through. Is she going through difficulties? Is there something that you can share with her? And I, w- I want to talk to you this morning about how to engage and where to engage and what to say. Perhaps it's inviting friend a friend out for coffee. The question is, are you going? And the answer is, when we go, we take the God-breathed word. You know, I tell our people, you know, we go in and we don't always know who's going to show up. And sometimes nobody shows up. But sometimes these people who show up, they're, they're brand new. And they, it's obvious. They, and I say, well, if you're not sure, don't get caught up in what to do. Just open your Bible to a familiar text and read it. Just read it and talk about the simplest, most basic things of what this word is saying. There's no greater joy than to just read the word of God 
and enter into a very simple conversation with somebody about what it says. It's a God-breathed word. I want to look at this in four things. In children, we have children here today, 12 and under, 13 maybe, all right? I have a homework assignment for you, okay? There are four words I want you to remember, all right? Parents, when you get home for lunch, I want you to talk about those four words. So children, are you ready? Are you ready to listen? You ready to get those four words? All right, here they are. It says that the God-breathed word is profitable for teaching. First word, teaching. It's profitable for reproof. You got it? Teaching, reproof, correction. Third word, teaching, reproof, correction. Fourth word, instruction in righteousness. You guys think you can remember that? All right, I'm going to give you four ways to help you remember those things too. All right? Teaching. Some translations use the word doctrine. The New King James says it's profitable for teaching or it's profitable for doctrine. Now here's the help. The first one for teaching. I want you to think about a train. And this, this is not original with me. I think I first got it from Jay Adams years ago, but I use it all the time in talking with people. I want you to think about the analogy of a train. A train has a designer. A train is designed and it's made to run on tracks. And what I'm going to say to you is that the Bible teaches us who we are. We're trains and there are tracks that we are to run on. And we have a designer who made us to run on those tracks. Think about this. For years I've taught Genesis 1. And I've said there are two things in Genesis 1 that are absolutely critical to your life. Everybody, I don't care who you are, the pagan, I don't, the, bring me the, the worst pagan out there. He thinks about these two things. He doesn't know he's thinking about them necessarily, but he thinks about them. We heard in Sunday school, how do you know what a text means? You look at the words that are repeated. If you go to Genesis 1, what's repeated there? And God said, and God said, I can't remember, eight or ten times. And God said, and God said, and then, and it was so, and it was so. Fact number one, what is the most important thing you need to know about God? Who's in control? Who's in control of this world? Who is in charge? We have a God who speaks. He simply speaks and says, let there be light. He doesn't go to Lowe's. He doesn't load up a truck and come home and build a world. No, he speaks. He calls it out of nothing. And we have a second word that's repeated. He speaks, it was so, and it was good. It was good. Second thing you need to know, is there somewhere out there, is there a God who is good? We live our lives in answer to those two questions. But I want you to know there's a third question. And I've changed my mind. I put it to number one. What is the first thing we know from Genesis 1? God is a God 
of words. He speaks. How do we know anything? He speaks. He uses language. Language has nouns and subjects and verbs and direct objects. And those words have meaning. So when we talk about doctrine, when we talk about teaching, what are we talking about? We're talking about words. We're talking about logic. We're talking about words that have meaning. We're talking about truth. How do we know? How can we know anything? We have a God of words. He speaks and things happen. He's good. We like to think, and I've heard, that Aristotle created logic. Well, Aristotle didn't create logic any more than Einstein invented the atom. Or Isaac Newton invented gravity. You know, Aristotle began to describe logic. We have grammar. We have logic because that's the mind of God. That's how God thinks. And he's given his mind in his word. So the first thing, children, you get this? Teaching. What is teaching like? It says you have a creator who created you. He made you in his image. You are a train. You are a train designed to run on a track. So the second word, reproof. What does that mean? Well, think about this. Suppose I'm a train and I'm going from here to to D.C. And there's a big curve following the river. Big curve that goes all the way around. And on this curve, in the middle of this big C curve... Out in the middle of that is a cornfield. Don't you think it'd be much easier to leave the tracks and cross the cornfield? What happens when a train leaves the tracks and cries to cross the cornfield? That's our culture today. That's the world we live in. That's the world of Psalm 12. That's the world of the first part of 2 Timothy 3. We live in a world where we are trying, we are trains who are trying to cross cornfields. There's a wonderful book, if you haven't read it or haven't heard about it, you should buy it. It's called Strange New World by Carl Truman. Strange New World by Carl Truman. And he talks about this. What is the nature and what is at the root of this culture in which we live, in which we are trains trying to cross cornfields? People say things, I'm a woman in a man's body. Or I'm a man in a woman's body. We have a Supreme Court justice who can't define woman. We've redefined marriage. We have students that think they're cats and we're trying to create schools where they all feel comfortable. We kill children through abortion and we call it choice. See, what's at the root of all this? It's the redefinition of words. It's words that their definitions have been changed. Someone has said, 
We use the same words, but not the same dictionary. We live in a world that thinks a train can come into a cornfield. Now, we live in a world that doesn't like reproof. You hear people say, well, nobody tells me what to do. So you're the train in the cornfield? What's going on with my life? Why is my marriage falling apart? Why can I never have peace? Why can I never come to hope? Are you a train in a cornfield? You see, as you talk to people and and you listen to them and listen to their stories, are they telling you the story of a train in a cornfield? Then what they need is reproof. They need somebody to say, you know, you're a train. You were never meant to cross a cornfield. You were meant to run on tracks. When we redefine words like this, we redefine, we try to change reality. We think, well, I'm Lord, who, who you know, Psalm 12, who can, who, I'm Lord over everything, and these words create reality. No, words don't create reality. Words can describe reality. What happens when we redefine words? We end up with chaos. We end up with chaos, and we are beginning to see, maybe even further along than beginning to see, the chaos that comes when trains crowd across cornfields. You know, it's not a democratic process. You may go to college, and everybody at college may be doing certain things with their boyfriends and girlfriends, and there's this kind of people and that kind of people. You know, it doesn't matter how many trains decide that cornfields, that's a great idea. We'll, we, will really, we will really be much better off by crossing that cornfield. You see, truth is not a democratic process. If you get 100,000 trains that want to cross the cornfield, you're going to have 100,000 wrecks because it's not democratic. You see, we don't get together and create our own reality. Reality is created by God. All right, children, we got our first word, teaching. You're a train on a track. Reproof. You're a train in the cornfield, all right? You need to, what do you need? You need correction. What's correction? Correction comes along and tells us how can you get a train out of a cornfield? Correction tells us how to fix this problem. I'm going to recommend another book to you. It's called Live Not By Lies by a man named Rod Dreher. The phrase live not by lies comes from a Russian dissident dissident who's dead now, but many of us knew him earlier. Uh, His name is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And somebody asked him once, Alexander, how do you fight How do you fight oppression? How do you fight tyranny? How do you fight when governments try to redefine and cultures try to redefine words? What do you do? And his answer was, live not by lies. One of the things we must do with humility, but yet with courage, with fortitude, we have to go back to the truth. How do we live not by lies? What do words mean? We go back to the Bible. 
You see, that's the wonderful thing God has done for us. And that's that number one thing out of Genesis. We have a God who speaks. He has power. He's good. But he's, first of all, he's spoken. He's given us truth. He's defined words for us. He's given us grammar. He's given us logic. And these words and these sentences have meaning. Now, I have a trick question for you. How do you know what a word means? How do you know what a word means? First thing it may pop into your mind, well, that's why we have dictionaries, right? We have dictionaries to tell us what words mean. Good try, but not correct. Dictionaries, and this is a critical distinction, dictionaries give us possible meanings. You can look at some words, even some very short words in the dictionary, and there will be 25 meanings. The question is, what does this word in this sentence mean? What does justification mean in Romans 3? What does it mean in James chapter 2? The same word is used in both places. And whole churches have gone off track by taking the definition of Romans 3 and applying it to James 2. You're justified by your works, James says. Whereas Romans is really clear, you're justified by faith. So what's the difference? Romans is talking about forensic justification before the face of God, the judge of all the earth. How do I answer him? Christ. Christ alone. What is James talking about? James is talking about the hypocrite. The hypocrite who says, I have faith. James says, show me that faith. Let me see your works. Or are you one thing on Sunday morning and another thing the rest of the week? You see, James wants you to be justified in the sight of men, not to complete what God has done in Christ. It's complete. It's full. It's eternal. But there are those who come to the church, just like we read about Moses, Janus, and Jambres. There's are those who come into the church and pretend to be Christians. James says, show me the reality of your life. So to correct things, we need, we need to look at words. And we need to look at them in their context. All right, children, we have three things so far. We have teaching. We have reproof, teaching, you're a train on a train track. Reproof, you're a train in a cornfield. No wonder things are falling apart. Correction, how do I get this train out of the cornfield? The fourth word, training or instruction in righteousness. How do you keep that train on the track? How do you keep it going in the right direction on the track? These, these first three words, teaching, reproof, correction, they all come together, and actually this is a dynamic. It's not a linear thing. You do one, one, one. No, they're all going on all at the same time. And you have to understand that. You have to understand those things going on in your own life all the time. We talk a lot in the prison ministry about, we use the phrase wine, women, and song. And we talk, to, we talk to the men and women we work with about those three, because those three in many ways summarize the challenges. 
they summarize the attraction of the cornfield. Wine, women, and song. Wine, drugs, alcohol, pornography, all those things out there, cars, wealth, businesses, all those things that we lust after that we think will bring us hope. Second, women. Sexuality. It's an issue in everybody's life. And we have to deal with that. We have to understand that. Third thing is song. Say, what does song have to do with any of this? Think about the songs that are out there today. Think about the rap and whatever. Even even the the good songs. What, What do they teach? You see, in in ancient history, when a king overcame a territory, he wanted to incorporate this nation into his kingdom. What did he do? He wrote songs. He wrote songs that taught the values of the kingdom. You know, we don't have a kingdom. We have a democracy, and we have all kinds of songs. And what are the, the values of those songs, and what do those songs glorify? They glorify sex and immorality and drugs And all those kinds of things. And I say to the men, you want to know which one of those three is the worst? It's songs. It's an opinion. But I think it's songs. Why? Because you wake up in the middle of the night and sing those. You know those songs you learned as a teenager. You know, I date my, I did it my way. You know those songs that come to you, and you know those words that fill your mind. And when you're mowing the grass or washing the dishes, those songs are playing through your head. You are programming your life to live a certain way. So if you are going to be trained in righteousness, if you're going to be a train that's going to stay on the tracks. You have to come to grips with these things in your life. Let me say that just like Moses, Janice, and Jambres, one of the issues we're facing in the church today is by an organization called Revoice. And Revoice is directed toward people who feel attractions, men who are attracted to other men, women who are attracted to other women, And one of the lines that is very pulling, it says, well, you know, if there's a teenage boy in your church and he's attracted not to the girls but to the boys, why, you don't want him to feel uncomfortable about these things. Why, we want to make him feel comfortable in the church. You don't want a church in which there's no place for him. So we tell him, well, your thoughts are okay, just so long as you don't act on them. Just don't act on these things. To which I say, no, 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 a thousand times no. What does it mean to say this sin is okay, but you can't as long as you don't act on it? See, we read it earlier today in Matthew 5. Jesus said to the Pharisees, what did he say? He who looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery. See, it is 
It is the thought. Sin begins in the thought. It begins in what you think and how you think. Revoice has adopted a Roman Catholic view of sanctification. And the Roman Catholic view is it's not a sin till you act on it. So I can sit here in church and lust after another man's wife, but it's not a sin unless I act upon it. I can sit here and and dream of having somebody else's life, but it's not a sin. I can covet their house, their wife, their business, but it's not a sin. No. No. Let me speak particularly to the young people today. Guilt. Guilt is a very important thing. It's a very important thing when you read the Bible and and those words define sin. It's very important that you read that and you say, yeah, that's me. That's me. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. We think guilt has the ability to fix us. If I just make myself feel guilty enough... I will get better. That's a lie. Guilt will not fix you. Guilt is important. Words have meaning. Words define sin. Guilt is important. But just beating myself over the head with guilt will not fix me. There's two things you have to understand as a Christian, and this is a brief, very brief survey of the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians has two parts. The first three chapters are the indicative. They tell us who we are in Christ. They tell us that we have been seated in the heavenlies, that before the foundation of the world, before God ever said, let there be light, he saw you and he purposed that you would be his child. And he not only purposed that you would be his child, but that you would be holy. So don't tell somebody they can't change. No, Before the foundation of the world, God said you can change. You can be different. Now, some of what's given impetus to revoice is there was in Christianity for 40, 50 years, starting back in the 70s, organizations who had noble aspirations, but they promised people, well, you you have attractions toward other men. We can make you have attractions only toward women. No. No. Bible doesn't say that. Their aspirations may have been noble, but their theology was awful. Their theology was awful. It's a form of perfectionism. God doesn't God doesn't promise you or me perfection in this life, but we have a position. We have a position in Christ, and what is that position? We are perfect. We have the very righteousness of God. We stand before God in the perfection of Christ. First half of Ephesians. Second half of Ephesians is we have a walk. We have a walk. And what's that walk like? It's a wavy line. But what's critical in that walk, we say, it's not the perfection of your walk. It's the direction. Where is that wavy line going? Is it going toward righteousness? Is it going toward holiness? That's the question. Now what we mean by that, we're not saying that if it's, it's the direction, not the perfection. We're not saying 
For when, when I sin, well, it doesn't matter. It's just the direction, not the perfection, and I'm doing okay, I think. No, that's not what we mean by that at all. We mean that we take perfection very seriously, and that is to be our goal. We are never to let go of that goal. Let me tell you a little story about Michael Jordan. I don't know if it was the 70s or 80s, but Nike had a great idea. We're going to make some tennis shoes, and we're going to name them after Michael Jordan. We're not sure if these things are going to sell, but here's our objective. We hope that in the first four years, we will sell $3 million worth of tennis shoes. Guess how many million dollars of shoes they sold in the first year? 126 million pairs in the first year. Today, today, they sell $3 million worth of Jordan shoes every five hours. Every five hours. Now, how is that? How did that come about? Well, Michael Jordan, you could, or we could argue, he may be the greatest player. He's certainly at the top. In his day, there were other players, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. I ask you, what did Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, what did they do in the offseason? You know what they did when they were at the peak of their career most every day in the offseason? Do you know what they did? They practiced basketball. They practice basketball. Wow, these men are on the front page of Sports Illustrated. People are fawning over them. You're so great. You've won all these championships. Why are you out there practicing basketball? Because they have a view in their head of perfection. They understand perfection. And they have come to grips with the reality You know, these people think I'm great, and yeah, I had a wonderful game, but it wasn't perfect. And there are parts of my game that are not perfect. There are parts of my game that I need to work on. I need to work on my game because there is a goal out there of perfection. I say to you as a Christian, in order to... to be trained in righteousness in order to come to grips with the fact that I'm a train and I'm on the tracks and I want to stay on those tracks. You have to come to grips with these things. If you, like the Pharisees, oh, perfect, well, no, we haven't committed the act. We haven't killed anybody. Therefore, we are righteous. We, we have redefined the law. We have dumbed it down so we can keep it. We can feel good about ourselves now because we keep the law. To which Jesus comes along and obliterates that. He says the law is about perfection. It's about perfection. So how do I address perfection and keep the direction going? It's called repentance. You remember Luther in the 95 Theses? He said when Jesus came preaching repentance, he meant that all of the Christian life is one of repentance. You see, all of the Christian life is is the ability and the willingness to repent. 
We say, to, we say to ourselves, we say to the people we work with, the Christian has to learn to repent early and often. You see, if you're at the bar and you're an alcoholic and you're about to take a drink, yeah, it, it, repent there, turn away from it. But the likelihood of your doing that at that point in your life is not very good. You have to understand what went on in your mind and in your heart that drove you to this point. You have to understand the anger that was there at your wife or the anger at your boss or the fear that you have about things that are going on. And these things are building up in you and you say, you know what gives me hope? I get peace at that bar. You see, you have to learn to repent early. You have to learn to repent often. Now you say, well, that's, that just sounds like an awfully miserable life. No, it's a wonderful life. It's a sweet life, and here's the reason. You see, the Bible says that God is near to the humble. The presence of God is near to the humble. So when I learn to back up my repentance to my thoughts and my conscience begins to grow. You see this, this line going up, it's a cone that gets narrow, but the opposite is going on inside of me. There's a cone that was very narrow. When I came to Christ, I didn't really understand very much about the law of God, but now that I've come to Christ, the law is breaking out all over. I begin to understand my conscience. I begin to understand who I am and my thoughts, and it's not a pretty picture, if I'm honest. It's not a pretty picture. What happens when I repent? You see, we hear Pastor Bullock say a lot, you don't find hope by looking inside. When you look inside, what do you see? You see a mess. <laughs> That's what you see. You see a mess. So where is hope? It's outside. It's outside of you. It's in Christ. You see, it's Christ who came. He said, those who are well, they don't need a doctor. I'm the great physician. I came to call sinners to repentance. I'm looking for sinners. And what Luther is saying is that not only was he looking for sinners, but he loves sinners. He loves his people when they're humble. And he pours his spirit out upon them. The fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace, where does it come? Does it come when I, oh God, you know, I read my Bible more, and I know I made this sin, but I'm doing much better, and I want you to really make me feel good. No, it comes when I'm honest. Or this is a real me. You know, I'm preaching to people, and look what I just thought. It's sin. Help me. I need you. He promises his Holy Spirit. He promises the joy of the Lord. You see, for too many of us, we were saved 20 years ago, and we keep going back to 20 years ago. And that, that's a good thing, and, and that happened. But the Christian life is not lived at a point in the past. It's lived in the present and the future. Do you have a living Savior who loves you today? who loves you, who loves sinners. He loves me. He's given me his Holy Spirit. He's encouraged me. He's given me joy. 
as I've learned to repent early. I repent early. I repent often. God is there. I have a Savior for today. I have a Savior who is going to go with me to the future. Children, did you get this? Are you ready for lunch? I know you're hungry. What is it? Teaching? You're a train on a track. Reproof? You're a train in a cornfield. Correction? This is how you get out of the cornfield and back on the track. Training in righteousness. This is how you stay on that track. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. You are a great and mighty God. You're the God of heaven and earth. You spoke reality into existence. You gave us words so that it's full of all kinds of ideas that are perverted and against you and your word. We pray that you would help us. We come to you this morning in humility and and honesty and say, Lord, we need your help. Strengthen us in Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.